Good morning, everybody. Thanks for that, you guys. Uh, beautiful day out there. I'm really excited to uh, get out and enjoy the sunshine after this, and I'm sure you guys are as well. Um, just a few announcements before we get started. Uh, again, and I know this is repetitive, but uh, we need to move away from any recurring gifts and Simple Give to our new system of giving in Breeze. If you are giving online, in a reoccurring way through Simple Give, we ask that you go on there, follow the directions to shut that down and move that gift over to uh, Breeze. It's all on our giving page on the website. Uh, again, we have a new text to give uh, option. You can, you can text to give now to the church and that'd be great. Or you can give through Venmo or you can send a check to 1116 uh uh, Lancaster Avenue, Bryn Mawr, 19010, and we'll get that check deposited for you. So that's just a quick thing about finances. Uh, secondly, a uh, little content warning today for you moms and dads. Uh, this sermon does have a graphic des- de- description of uh, the crucifixion process, so I just want to make you aware of that before we get into it, if little ears are around that you don't want uh, to hear that. Um, but so having said that, just uh, make adjustments if you need to. Uh, again, every Sunday, uh, we have new stuff for you guys, for moms and dads and kids on, on the website. It's updated every Wednesday. You just go to the third banner on the, on the top of the website and click on that. You'll get all the information you need. There's videos and materials and stuff for Kids Church you can use. And uh, 6-8-BBC, will, will, again, we'll have uh, information coming up on that. Um, and lastly, again, uh, and I know many of you have done this, and I'm really excited to hear that. Um, not that I know what's going on, but I, I just hear, oh, so-and-so's, you know, asked to have a spiritual mentor and things like that. That's really exciting to me because, you know, we train these 10 people at church just to really kind of feed feed others through this process of, of spiritual mentorship and it's just somebody that can sit and listen to you and hear what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life. Sometimes it takes another set of ears and eyes to see and hear what God is doing in your heart and kind of give you direction. It's sort of like bumpers down the you know bowling lane of life in a sense. They can give you uh, spiritual practices and, and pray for you and pray with you and things like that. So if you need a spiritual mentor during this time, it could be just a couple meetings with them via Zoom, a Zoom link or a telephone call or maybe even in person these days, right? Uh, just email spiritualmentors at 68.org and, and uh, Rob will get you set up with somebody. And uh, that's all for announcements. You just wanted to get that all out of the way. <coughs> Excuse me. I wanted to say that um, we are coming to the end of our series in John. If you're not, if you haven't been with us, if you're new, you've logged in, welcome today. We're really glad you're here. <coughs> we have a, excuse me, <coughs> with a tickle in my throat. Uh, we have a few more sermons left in John. Uh, I forget exactly how many I've planned out, but uh, a couple more. And um, today we find ourselves in, in the book of, uh, book of John, chapter 19. If you want to turn there in your Bible, uh, we're going to read verses 16 through 24 in, in just a minute. So just get that prepared if you'd like. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'll certainly read through that. So don't don't worry about it. You won't miss anything. But it's nice to be able to read together, uh, you know, as as we as we do these things. So uh, let me pray before we get started. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your presence. Uh, we thank you for what you're doing, even in times when we cannot see it. We 
stand on the gospel. We stand on your truth. And we know that you are solid, solid, solid ground. We talked about that last week. We pray that you would encourage our hearts and give us vision for the future, that as we round up this whole uh, COVID-19 issue and we start to plan on coming back together as a church and meeting physically in our building, that you would uh, move us to a new level in this church for the next decade. We pray that you would give us vision and you would walk with us. And we pray that you would speak to us today, Holy Spirit, that you would come right now and bless this time together. Uh, whether people are listening to this live or later on they connect via Facebook or whatever, we just pray that you would, um, you would, uh, bless this time, bless these words and, uh, and speak to us of yourself. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I, uh, in my lifetime, I was kind of a risky kid, risk taker kid. I, I've broken 12 bones. I've had pins in my arm. I've had surgeries. I've had a concussion. I've had uh, stitches too many times to count, uh, but none of that, none of those things that happened to me were excruciating pain, right? Uh, excruciating would be long-term, unbearable pain, 10 out of 10 in the pain level, right? I may have experienced four, five, maybe six, I don't, I'm not sure, but never a 10. I've never gotten even close to a 10. Some some of you may have really experienced excruciating, excruciating pain, but, you know, I don't know. But with the drugs available to us these days, pain is often quickly managed and reduced to manageable levels. And, you know, excruciating is defined in the English as uh, as causing intense, agonizing, extreme physical or mental pain. And we may say something is excruciating, but we often are really exaggerating, aren't we? It's not really excruciating. So today we look at the poor portrait of Jesus as the crucified king, and we want to look specifically at his excruciating death and what it does for us, right? Starting in in John 19, as I've said, verses 16 through 24, it says this, so the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, and there they crucified him. And with, uh, and with him, two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross, a little sign, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where, where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So everybody could read it, right? It's just my little addition. Verse 21. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of king of of the Jews. And Pilate answered, well, I've written what I've written, right? (laughs) And uh, verse 23, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. And this garment was seamless and woven in one piece from top to bottom, Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And this happened happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, that they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. And so this is what the soldiers did. And we're going to end right there with that verse. You know, as we read that, I want you to notice that there's very little of the excruciating pain of crucifixion described there in that passage. 
you know, almost none of it, right? And John is kind of being polite or almost innocuous uh, in, in, the, in that sense. Focus, he's really focusing much more on the other players in that story surrounding Jesus, you know, with Jesus on the cross there. But I want to ask you a question, what, or us a question, what, what ha- happens to a body at crucifixion? What actually happens physiologically, if, you know, physically to a body at crucifixion? You know, this torture was invented by the Persians in about 300 B.C., and it was perfected by the Romans in 100 B.C. So there were 300 years of practice made perfect of this form of torture before Jesus came along. You know, it was reserved primarily for the worst of criminals, and it's been described as the most painful death ever invented. It's crazy, right? And the English word excruciate is traced back to Latin, and it's composed of two parts, ex, which, in, which basically just intensifies a verb, and cruciere, which means to torture or to crucify. So hidden in that Latin is the word crucis or crux, uh, the, the Roman word for cross. So the word excruciate is actually derived from those who suffered crucifixion. You know, a pain so intense that that no Roman word could describe it at the time, and they had to coin a new word just for this level of pain. You know, Jesus, as we know, his back had been splayed open by that scourging, that whipping, right? And he was tired from carrying his cross. And at some point, we find out in the other Gospels that Simeon carried that cross for him for a while. And by Roman law, when a person was crucified, a wine that was mixed with gall or myrrh was offered, which only provided like a a mild analgesic. But Jesus had refused this. And they stripped him naked, and, and his clothing was divided among the Roman guards in fulfillment of Psalm 22, 18, where it says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You know, and nails weren't put through his hands, as many suppose, or many old paintings depict. The weight of the body would rip right through that flesh. So they were put through the wrists, where the bone, you know, right between the bones of your wrist, where it could bear the weight. Yet in doing so, it severed the or damaged the median nerve, which runs down the arm, producing searing pain in both arms. And having been nailed to the cross, Jesus was in an impossible position to maintain. I don't know if you've ever done this, but you do that like wall sit, like you're sitting on a chair, but there's no chair there. You lean against the wall and you like, you bend your legs like you're on a chair. And if you try that, I mean, I've tried it. I can only last about like less than a minute. It's your, your legs start to cramp up. It hurts, right? So Jesus though on the cross was in a harder position. His legs were flexed at like a 45 degree angle, forced to bear his weight with the muscles of his thighs, producing severe cramping within minutes. You know, his weight was born on one nail driven through his feet. And as the strength of his legs diminished, the weight of his body was transferred to his wrists and his arms and his shoulders. And within minutes, his shoulders were dislocated, followed quickly by the elbows and then the wrists. So eventually, the arms would have extended nine inches longer than normal. And as a fulfillment of prophecy in, in uh, Psalm twenty-two fourteen, it says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. You know, the weight of his body on his arms caused his rib cage to be pulled up and out causing his chest to be in a permanent position of maximum 
respiratory inspiration all the time, kind of like holding your breath underwater like this all the time, right? And in order to breathe, Jesus had to force his body up to exhale. Breathing was no longer just a subconscious activity, but it was forced and it was painful to do. He would have had to push down on the nails, uh, the nail in his feet to raise his body and allow his ribcage to move down and inwards just to push air out of his lungs. So you imagine the pain of pushing down on that nail in your feet. You're fatigued, you're cramped and all that. It was horrifying, right? Hollywood, you know, depicts crucifixions with a person hanging there almost placidly, maybe hot and tired and in some pain, but really not moving around that much. They're just sort of hanging there. And the, But the reality is that the person hanging on that cross was involuntarily and constantly writhing and moving in agony. They're, they were forced to move up and down the cross. It was a distance of about 12 or more inches just to breathe. And crosses were uh, made of old olive trees, and they were rough, and they were full of splinters. And so with every movement, it would scrape against the open wounds on his back. And since olive trees don't grow very tall, he was probably very close to eye level, you know, putting the jeering crowd right in his face. You know, it was not like way up and distant. He was right there with them, looking right into their faces. You know, just to breathe caused excruciating pain, coupled with the absolute terror of asphyxiation, right? And as minutes passed like hours, he was less able to bear his weight on exhausted legs. And there was increasing dislocation of his wrists and elbows and shoulders and further elevation of his chest wall made his breathing more and more difficult. And within minutes, he was severely short of breath. You might think the movements would become less frequent as Jesus became increasingly exhausted, but the terror of imminent uh, death by asphyxiation would have forced continued struggle all the time, constant movement. And with excruciating cramps from you know the effort to raise his body up and from the pain of his two shattered meeting and nerves exploding with every movement down his arm, the nail in his feet covered in blood and sweat, his movements probably became very violent and very involuntary involuntary, and in an effort just to, to breathe rightly, just to get a breath. And to add insult to injury, he was completely naked. And the Jewish leadership and the crowds and everybody were jeering at him and swearing and laughing at him as his own mother watched her son die this gruesome death. You know, he was in a state of hypoventilation or in, inadequate ventilation. His Blood oxygen level uh, began to fall, and he developed hypoxia, which is low blood oxygen. Uh, in addition, because of his restricted breathing, the CO2 levels in his blood began to rise, which stimulated his heart to beat faster and faster in order to increase the delivery of oxygen, oxygen and, and remove carbon dioxide. And as a result, he began to pant uncontrollably. Jesus' involuntarily, involuntary physical reflexes demanded that he take deeper breaths all the time, moving up and down the cross much faster over and over again, despite the excruciating pain. And the agonizing movements spontaneously started to, uh, several times a minute to the delight of the jeering crowd. They just love to watch this stuff. 
However, due to ex increasing exhaustion, he was unable to provide more oxygen to his starved body, and his heart beat faster and faster, and his pulse rate skyrocketed, and he was bleeding, and he was dehydrated, and his blood pressure fell, and he was in first-degree shock with low blood volume and, 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 and increasingly fast heart rate and, and excess excessively fast sort of respiratory rate and excessive sweating. By noon, Jesus probably... Uh, his heart probably began to fail, and fluid was building up in the lungs, which only served to exacerbate his breathing. And um, he was in heart and respiratory failure at that point. And he said, I thirst because his body was crying out for fluids. He was slowly suffocating to death. And that's how you usually die in a, in a crucifixion. And at this stage, fluids would gather in the space around his heart, keeping it from beating properly because of the increasing physiological demands on his heart. It may have literally burst. And quite possibly, that could have been the cause of his death, uh, if not suffocation. Now, to slow the process, because this is so evil, right? To slow the process and increase the agony, the Romans would put a small wooden seat on the cross, it would, just, it would just barely be big enough to allow the person to slightly take the weight off uh, by resting barely on their sacrum, their, ta their tailbone, right? And, and the effect of this is that it would sometimes take up to nine days to die on a cross. Yet when they wanted to expedite the, the death, they'd simply break the legs of the victim, causing the victim to suffocate in a matter of just minutes. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, after all that, right, at three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus said this word. He said, to tell us die, to tell us die, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Don't, don't write me an email if I haven't, but to tell us die. And it means it is finished. It is finished. And he gave up his spirit at that moment and he died. And there was no need to break his legs. Not a bone of his body was broken in fulfillment of a prophecy, of another prophecy. In six hours, of the most excruciating torture, he was gone. You know, the physicality of that event is very real. It happened to Jesus, a very real man, at one point in history, under the hot Palestinian sun. You know, I was watching Oprah one day. You guys remember Oprah? I don't, I, I don't even know if Oprah's still on. I, maybe she is. But I was watching her one day. This is a long time ago. And she had become sort of this spiritual guru for many people in this country. And as I listened to her, there was little I disagreed with her advice that she gave to Steve Tyler, who was the lead singer of Aerosmith when she was interviewing him. And her thoughts were full of practical wisdom and good down-to-earth advice, just good stuff, right? And the thought occurred to me, what sets the Christian message apart from Oprah, Right. You know, why is it just good advice or is it some, there's something different? You know, I could sit with a number of people as a pastor and give the same counsel to them that Oprah was giving and be very spot on. There's a plethora of helps out there available to us these days, right? We've got self-help books. We've got TV shows. We've got articles, conferences, websites, counselors, all giving us very clear direction in life, you know? You know, and I think the answer lies, what's the difference between Oprah advice, right, and, and Christianity and our message? I think the answer lies in that one word, to tell us thy. It is finished. 
You know, it's a vivid and it's a very expressive word. And understanding how it was used may give a better grasp of what Jesus meant when he said it is finished on the cross right before he died. It has five different aspects to it. Number one, it is a servant's word. It's used when a servant uh, completes a task and, and completes it to perfection. It's a priest's word, number two, used when a sacrificial animal was examined by the, by the priest and found to be absolutely worthy of a sacrifice. It's a farmer's word used when an animal was born that was an absolute perfect specimen, right? Like to telesty, right? It was an artist's word used when an artist applied the finest, final touches to a masterpiece and nothing could be do- done, nothing more at all could be done to make that masterpiece any better. It was perfect, right? It's a merchant's word, number five, meaning it is paid in full, right? It was used when a merchant and a customer had haggled and a deal was struck and everyone involved was absolutely satisfied and the bill was paid absolutely in full and nothing else was owed. Now, isn't that an interesting word that Jesus used on the cross that day? You know, everyone in John's gospel, in his depiction of, uh, of this crucifixion event, seems self-absorbed, you know, and Jesus is almost writhing in the background, you know, just on the cross, and they're all doing their own things. You have the Jewish leaders, you know, upset and concerned about the wording on the sign that Pilate wrote and what it communicated, and they wanted it changed. You have Pilate, you know, sort of getting his little jab in on them <laughs> with the wording, saying, I wrote what I wrote, you know, he's not going to change it. You know, you have the soldiers casting lots for Jesus' clothing and milking sadistic pleasure out of this this horrific process. John's description, as I said earlier, is innocuous. It's straightforward. It's devoid of the painful details that Jesus experienced, which I painted for you today. None of the gospel writers really describe the physical effects in detail as I have, Possibly since they already knew how painful it was, they had all witnessed crucifixions before. They knew what it looked like, and they knew what it felt like, probably, or better than us, at least. But the gospel writers focus really more on the shame and the cosmic results of this, as they should. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke recount people walking by, shaking their heads. And in Matthew 27, 38 through 34, or 44, it says, you who are going to destroy the temple, right? These are Jesus' words. You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. The Jesus, Jewish leaders mocked, uh, mocked him, right? They, they continued, they said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from now from the cross, and we will believe in him. So they're using his own words against him to mock him as he struggles against that wood. And the scene almost looks very pathetic. But to tell us die is a word of accomplishment, of, of finality, of finishing something, right? If, if Jesus had said, I'm finished, and died. That would be a a, a statement of defeat, wouldn't it? But he said, it is finished. But what was finished? What was finished? Was the way opened up just for good opratic advice, you know, from our spiritual guru, Oprah, you know, that people follow these days? Or did more happen that day? Did something greater happen that day? 
I think we see the answer where Matthew and Mark record further details. In Mark 15, 33 through 44, it says this, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After all that torture, that's what he screamed. And 1 Peter 2.24 tells us in these moments, Jesus took our sin upon himself when it says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. But healed of what? Healed of what? Is life absolutely perfect for you right now due to what Jesus did on that cross? No. It's not. Yet by way of this very excruciating physical death of a very real man, we've got to say that the way is opened up once again for personal relationship with God the Father, that the kingdom has come, and and, and it's available to us now. A gap had been bridged, relationship had been reestablished. You know, darkness enveloped the world and the earth shook in that moment. And in Mark 15, 38 through 39, it says this, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. And within that holy place of the temple, There was an inner room called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. And it was a very sacred room. It was considered to be God's dwelling place in the midst of his people. And a thick curtain, a thick, huge curtain or veil hung in front of this room. And the word veil in Hebrew means a screen or a divider or a separator, which hides something, right? It shielded a holy God from sinful humankind. And whoever entered that uh, into that Holy of Holies was entering into the very presence of God. And if you remember, in the Old Testament, in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, God had chosen a mediator for his people, the high priest, who could only pass through that veil once a year on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifice for himself and all the sin of all the people. And the veil was a barrier between man and God, not because God did not desire relationship, rather because he did. Because God and sin, like oil and water, just cannot mix. The veil was a barrier of protection for us until sin could be dealt with in finality, and God was making that preparation through Jesus. And as the high priest entered the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he had to prepare himself. Before he went in there, he had to wash, he had to wear special clothing, he had to bring burning incense, he had to bring the blood of the sacrifice to pay for the sin of Israel and himself before he entered into the Holy of Holies. And God remained shielded behind this thick curtain. But the cross changed that. When Jesus died, the curtain in the temple, shielding the Holy of Holies, this 60-foot-high, 30-foot-wide, four-inch-thick of curtain of woven yarn was torn from top to bottom, which no person could have ever done, or even a crowd of people could have done it. 
The Holy of the Holies was opened. God was now accessible. Jesus' death paid for sin, making us right with God. The torn veil illustrates Jesus' body broken, opening the way for us to come right into God's presence. And as Jesus cried out, it is finished on the cross. He was proclaiming God's plan complete. The ultimate sacrifice had been made. It was finished. You know, as Hebrews 6, 19 through 20 says, we can now boldly enter into God's presence, the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. You know, in answer to the question, how are you made right with God? Or how do you get right with God? The Heidelberg Confession, or Catechism, sorry, uh, answers that question in this way. And I think it's a great description. It says, only by true faith in Jesus Christ, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, and of never having kept any of them, even though I'm still inclined towards all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is to accept this gift of God with a believing heart. That is a good description of the gospel. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain that is his body. So his curtain becomes the, his, his body becomes the curtain that is ripped into, opened up for us to, to be able to enter the Holy of Holies. It says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. The Holy of Holies represents heaven itself. God's dwelling place with his people, to which we now have access through Jesus. As Hebrews 9, 24 through 26 says, For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year, with blood that is not his own, but now he has appeared once for all at the end of days to do away with sin by the sacrifice himself, of himself. You know, as a result of Jesus' finished work, we've been adopted into the family of God, right? We've not only been justified legally, but we've been adopted into the family of God. J.I. Packer, in his book, Uh, entitled Knowing God, says it this way. He says, adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of this relationship. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even greater. Isn't that wonderful? You know, Jesus used a servant's word since his task was finished. 
He used a priest's word since he was the perfect sacrifice. He used a farmer's word since he was the perfect specimen. He used an artist's word since he had finished the masterpiece. He used a merchant's word since the price had been negotiated and paid in absolute full. Salvation can only be accomplished by a perfect man, but only God could do it. None of us could be perfect. The excruciating death of that perfect God-man Jesus sets our message apart from Oprah and all the other advice givers out there. We now have access to God through him and him alone. No one else has accomplished that. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And this is why he said it is finished. The message of the gospel is beyond good advice for life. Sure, there are many moral lessons that we can follow and live better, and it's good advice for life out there in the Bible, you know, that we can read and, and we can share with each other. But, you know, it's be, it, the gospel goes beyond that. It speaks of a cosmic reality of a reconciled relationship that we can have with God through Jesus Christ. And now having that cosmic gap closed since you have you uh, since you're reconciled to God by this sacrifice, we live on like the prodigal son, ever surprised by God's grace daily, always coming into a deeper realiza- realization of our position as adopted children in Jesus. It's not about being perfect. It's not about having a perfect life. It's about being in safe relationship and resting in the cosmic reality that Jesus bought you back through his own excruciating death. To tell us, it is finished. And I hope you're at home right now saying amen to that fact. Because that is the central most important thing that we communicate in this world. And I challenge us, I challenge us right now to get off all the issues and start to communicate Jesus to people around us. Go beyond the good advice, go beyond the issues and start to communicate the fact that it is finished and that Jesus has opened up this door for everyone who would walk through it to have a relationship with God once more. Let me pray for us. Father, as we enjoy the sunshine today, I think, I pray that it would remind us that your sun shines upon this world and wants all people to come into that light. We ask that you would love us, uh, not that we just feel better, but that we would own your life and, and your message so strongly that we would walk through adversity willingly to see others come into that realization. It is finished. We thank you for those words. Jesus, it, as you sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, looking forward to this suffering that you were inevitably going to experience, I am not sure that I would have gone to the cross. That would have scared me to death. You asked for that cup to pass, but then you said, if it be your will, Father, I will do it. And you did it. And I am so amazed that someone would do that for me and for everybody else. We love you so much, and we want your life to reign in this world. This world needs it more more now than ever. Uh, We need your peace. We need your kingdom come right now on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what we pray for right now. 
as cities burn, as people riot, as as people suffer, as as you know, just evil reigns sometimes. We pray that you would crush the will of Satan and that you would bring us back into your light. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Woo! That was a good one, in my opinion. <laughs> I had a fun time uh, preaching that. I, I hope you guys have a great day and a great week, and I hope we'll be back in, you know, we're going to, our plan is that when we move to the green phase, we're going to, we're going to get back to church uh, meeting uh, physically at our building. So pray for that. Pray for that hap- to happen quickly and that we'll be in that room together soon. Amen. Amen. See you guys later.